0: Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open up to Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23. Romans chapter 6, we'll be looking at verses 15 through 23, which Pastor Jimmy read for us. Um, be honest with you, uh, this passage, as we planned out, as when Pastor Kivitz sat down and said, I want to take the congregation through Romans, um, we mapped out what these sermons would look like. We, we said, here's when the texts would come, and we had the calendar. And we still have that calendar. And we did not know uh, how the calendar would all play out. But I have this statement I like to use, and I've said it to my students, and I've said it to you before. Uh, God plays chess, not checkers. And if you don't get that reference, let me explain it to you. Checkers is a game, I'm going to bash you a little bit, it takes minimal skill. Uh, because uh, checkers is, sometimes if you play with certain people, they'll put, their posi- they'll put their person there, and then they'll say to you, you have to jump you have to make that jump, which I'm like, I live in America. I don't have to do that. Um, But checkers, sometimes those moves are forced. The goal of checkers is to get rid of everybody. Uh, In chess, I only got to take one piece. And uh, I'm going to tell you, I've never played a game where I've only taken one piece. Uh, That's awesome. Never done that. I have accidentally won chess, and I said it that way. I have accidentally won chess games with like a few moves. And I'm like, yeah, I planned that. That was all me. Um, but in chess, you have to think three, four, five moves ahead. Um, isn't it great that our God knows everything? And not only does he know everything, he's in control of everything. I, I love that. And when, God, and when we planned our series through Romans, we didn't know that God would have us in today's text on such a day as this. And I'm convinced and you can argue with me otherwise, but I will tell you you're wrong, that God has this text today for us at Salem. So I know our hearts are heavy. I like to address elephants in the room. Our hearts are heavy, but can we be encouraged by the text today? So let's take a look at what what God has to say. First of all, today's passage is a continuation from the same argument that Paul had in last week's passage. Remember, at the very beginning of chapter 6, Paul shared a possible concern that people would have had, some in his day would have had, to the gospel. And that argument for him was his background with a Pharisee, or as a Pharisee, he, he anticipated a question that could be thrown out. Remember, is, uh, should we continue in sin that grace may abound since, since God has declared us righteous? no matter, based on Jesus' faith, based on, based on what, our faith in Him, since He's declared us righteous, can we just keep on sinning? And the answer was? Oh, no, what was the answer? What a ghastly thought. Thank you. What a ghastly thought to think that way. You see, their idea was that the gospel Paul preached was wrong because it excuses sin. If Jesus paid the penalty for all sin, they thought, well, what's to keep people from sinning and might as well keep sinning? Their idea was, what's the use of believing the gospel if it doesn't change your behavior? Now, Paul reasoned that idea. Remember, I'm going to walk you through this a little bit. Paul reasoned against that by calling us to live a resurrected life. And what that is, is we know that sin's power has been defeated in Christ, it has no more power over us. We consider ourselves dead to sin and alive because of Christ. We live in that newness of life because of Christ's resurrection. And we allow the Holy Spirit to use Scripture to change us from the inside out, making us more and more like Jesus. And we choose to let how God sees us in Christ define us rather than how we see ourselves or how others see us. And then we mimic the Son of God. We imitate Him at every opportunity as we await for His return when He makes us exactly like His Son, Jesus. Now, you're like, Rick, you just did last week's sermon in three minutes. That was like 40 last week. I know. I'm getting better. In the passage under consideration today, Paul has taken us back to that same argument. And he's going to repeat that previous objection in chapter 6, verse 1, but in a different way. We read it with me? Again, Pastor Jimmy read this for us, but let's read it together. In verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? What a ghastly thought. He says the same word. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. By the way, don't be offended at Paul's statement. He's just saying, look, I want to help you get this. For you, or just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Or if I may reword that, kind of in the, the way Paul is kind of in the Greek doing that, he says in verse, uh, in the end of verse 19, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to more righteousness. He says there's the opposite. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things which you are now ashamed for the end of those things is death. But now you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and, it's in, and in its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. May God bless the reading of his word and may you, will you pray with me today. Father, thank you for this time to open your word. It is humbling to stand before your people And proclaim your word. Who is sufficient for these things? Father, thank you for this opportunity. God, may may your word be what's remembered today. May my opinions be forgotten, but may your word be remembered. And may people leave today amazed at how beautiful our master Jesus is. And willing to follow him wherever he calls them we pray this in his wonderful name. Amen. You see, again, Paul repeats that concern again. Remember, uh, specifically speaking, the argument in this passage would have been used by the Pharisees against God, the gospel of grace that Paul, again, did so eloquently proclaim in chapter 5. Now, what they're saying is, now this is the new argument, they're suggesting, isn't the law necessary to uphold our morality or behavior? Now, they're talking about the law of Moses, but let's talk for a minute. On your way home today, if I were to tell you I've spoken with the police department, there will be no patrols on the roads today. Some of you are giggling and smiling, you sinners. Because you're thinking, all right, that speed limit has now just become a speed suggestion. All right? And so if you knew there was no law out there, you might speed Now, you're like, you might go, well, no, I'm a, I'm a moral person. I might be convicted. if I might feel bad. I would call, my, I would call the police chief and go, I just want you to know I sped uh, on Ebert, all right? But what he's saying here is the law of Moses, isn't it necessary to uphold your morality? Or they could say it this way, if the law is no longer our authority, what keeps this gospel of grace that Paul's talking about from becoming a permit to sin? Now, while Paul is specifically engaging the objection of the Pharisees, I really believe um, that argument in one way or another is an argument for all human religion, okay? Think about every human religion just for a moment, because I believe if you boil it down to, to one phrase, it's going to be something like this. Do bad, you'll be punished. Do good, you'll be rewarded. Now some of you are thinking, religion, that's parenting. That's parenting. That's right. I think my dad had that tattoo. I'm not, I'm not so sure. Okay? And it's true, right? We think like that. We operate like that. Even we who understand the gospel of grace think like that. And when we say bad, we might even word it something else. Do what we're supposed to, or we'll be punished. So, can I have that moment? Um, when I miss a church service, Maybe you're not. Maybe this is just my therapy session. That's okay. We're doing this together. Do you feel guilty? Oh, they're going to know. I better know. I I better have a temperature. And I better, maybe I should take a picture of it just in case somebody asks. So you you show up the next Sunday. Where were you? We missed you. Oh, well, hang on. Let me show you. I got a, I took a picture of my COVID test. It's here. (laughs) Okay. All right. And there's that guilt we feel sometimes. Sometimes when someone asks you to, to do something at the church that you, you, you just know you're not qualified to do, like for me, listen, I love children. I, I, I love young kids. I just don't want to work in the nursery. Like, you don't love babies? I love babies. My babies, not yours. Okay? So I see Pam walk toward me sometimes. Hey, I need to talk. No, you don't, Pam. You don't need me. You don't. But I'm going to go. Because I have that guilt, you know? Because sometimes we can get asked to serve with a little passive-aggressive guilt, right? Don't you? Would you like to help us love children today? Would you like to? It's kind of the same way that at the grocery store, they ask you, would you like to round up your money to give to underprivileged baby orphan llamas who need to see, right? And you're like, that's the worst. Well, no, I don't want to do that, right? Right? But you do. Let me just tell you, as a testimony, all at oh, Harris Teeter's nationwide, maybe there are those little balloons that are up because of guilt for me. They're, don't look at that my name on there and go, "That's a good man right there." No, that's all guilt. As a matter of fact, I put some people's names on. You might see your name at a Harris Teeter for about six months when he was the youth pastor here. Dave Ashford gave more money from my account to the baby orphan llama foundation, whatever it was. Because we do things out of guilt sometimes, right? Because we have this deep down in our head, if I don't, if I don't, I'll get punished. You see, and while we may not say it out loud, this way of thinking about God can and often does seep into our understanding of the gospel. God, as we can often think, is pleased with us when we're good boys and girls and angry at us when we're bad. And we, when we do the right thing, he'll bless us. If we don't, he'll bring hardships or trials. You see, guys, we're, we're not as different from the Pharisees of Jesus and Paul's day. We're really not. Because this is a human nature that we have. And just as the Pharisees kind of reckoned that their acceptance of God or with God is based on religious duty, we can see that his favor on us is maybe sometimes contingent on our moral behavior. Now, what I want to suggest to you is that Paul's word to his possible objectors of his day is the same for us as well. Their accusation against Christians is since they've they've been given this righteousness freely through Christ, then they could likely uh, take away, throw out morality out the window and live the way they want. However, Paul responds to that objection with the same phrase he used in verse 1. If you remember it, he uses that phrase. In the the Greek, it's a Greek phrase. And we had different translations that did it in different ways. ESV says something like, by no means. But our favorite, my favorite, and I hope you've joined me, was J.B. Phillips. What was it? What a ghastly thought. What a ghastly thought to think that our Christianity, our acceptance of the gospel, sets us free from any morality. And we can live as we please. That's what Paul says. And he then launches into a response to this possible objection. And he counters it with an argument from slavery. Now, the biblical understanding of slavery is quite different what comes to our minds today. And I want to show this on the screen. It's a cool word. And I put it up there in the Greek language just to show off. That's all I'm doing. That Greek word is a cool word. It's Doulos. It's loss. I've talked to my wife about this. If I could get over my germophobia and my resistance to pain, I might get this tattoo. It's a good one because the word means bondservant, and it harkens back to the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 21, verses 1 through 6, the Lord gives these instructions to the people of Israel. He says, now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free from nothing. Now, let me stop for a minute. Well, what would commonly happen at that time period was if a person owed a debt that they could not pay on their own. They had the opportunity to sell themselves into slavery to work off that debt. Do so you understand that? I think that's, a, that's humane compared to what we do now with debt. How many of you guys are still paying off student debt? Okay, there's a lot of people like, I'm retired and I'm still paying off student debt. So, so you understand that. So how long does he have to work? He has to work six years, no matter what the, no matter what the total. He works six years and he's set free on the 7th. Verse three, if he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife of their children shall be her master's and he shall go out alone. Now you're reading that, you're like, wait a second. First of all, this isn't a sermon on Exodus chapter 21. I'll come back to that maybe at another time. Let me just keep going, okay? But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. Now, I'm a word picture guy, so you read it, but if you need visual, I thought about doing this to somebody who would be willing, but I'm, I'm going to go against it. So, if I owed my master or I owed someone money, I could sell myself into slavery to that master, I would work that long at the end, if I did not want to go free because my master was a wonderful master, he would take me to the doorpost of his house, take the fatty part of my ear, the lobe, and with an awl, he would puncture it, and he would pierce me into his door of his house. Now, one time, I taught a bunch of students that, and the question the kid comes up, yes, what kind of servant just stands there at the door with his ear pierced they 'd let him out you know they, the, this is metaphorical, people. But look, here's the symbolism. You ready? What they're saying is his blood is now part of this home. He's family. And now this servant walks around doing the duties of his master with a indicator, a hole in his ear of the bondservant, the doulos. Do you see the beauty of this? Here, here, let me explain to you. For a slave to refuse their independence and choose rather to continue to serve his master is a testimony of the greatness of his master. Think about that for a moment. When bond servants were seen in and around the city with the mark in their ear, it was a witness of the magnificence of their master and their utter devotion to him. Friends, when you and I serve our master the Lord Jesus, using our newly given freedom from sin and death to serve him alone with our lives, we display to the world that he's a beautiful master. Ladies and gentlemen, Pastor Kivitt and Pastor Harper have holes in their ears. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? They're declaring to the world that, hey, I've got safety here. I've got a job here. I've got family that i got to take care of, but I've got a beautiful master that I must serve. And may I say this, pulpit committee, metaphorically, look at the ear of your candidates. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? They've got to proclaim a beautiful master who, is, who can say whatever he wants and do whatever he wants in their lives, and they'll go without any hesitation, much like When Jesus called his disciples and they left everything without a hesitation and left and went. That's what we're looking for. That's what we see in this passage. And Paul's clear here in this text. And he says it's clear that what master a slave serves. He then states in this passage that a person's obedience is an indicator of who or what that person is a slave to. If I say I'm in Christ, but I actively seek to live a life that's contrary to the resurrected life that we spoke about last week, it shows that I'm still enslaved to sin. You see, the resurrected life is one that is enslaved to Christ alone. And Paul further argues that each person is a slave to one of two things. I'm going to put this on the screen. I like charts. You see, in this passage, Paul is up front with the results of who we serve. He says, think about it. If you're a slave to sin, you're free from righteousness. has no hold on you. Morality, no hold. Your present experience that you're enjoying by serving sin is shame. And your future, death, right up front. But if you choose to be a slave to God, you have freedom from sin. And your present experience is one of holiness, which we're going to talk about here in a moment, and the eternal destiny that you have is eternal life. He sets two for, just like Moses did when he tells the people. Just like Joshua, when he followed after Moses, he says, You got two options life or death. Choose life that you may live. He's very upfront. Paul is not trying to sell some kind of used car to the people of Rome. He's like, let me tell you what's going on. You're either going to choose life or you're going to choose death. You're going to be a slave to God or you're going to be a slave to sin. That's it. Now, I believe from this passage there's one overarching command today, and here it is. Submit yourself as a slave to God. There's your command. You're like, oh, can we leave now? No, i got time. Because we've got to unpack this. we got to unpack this. Then why should I? Because I just told you what you should do. And now what I want to do is talk about how we do this. We're supposed to submit ourselves as a slave to God. And Paul gives us in the passage, these aren't Rick's ideas, Paul gives us three, pa- three ideas in this passage to do this. Or I should say three reasons to do this. All right? This is not just a because I said so sermon that Paul writes here. He's telling them why you should do it. And the very first one, submit yourself as a slave to God because it's the only option to being a slave to sin. You've, you've only got one option. You're either a slave to God or you're a slave again, a slave to sin. Now, this should go without any explanation, but permit me just a little time here. Often what would drive a servant to desire to remain in servitude and give themselves over as a bondservant was their understanding of the alternative. For example, if I, sold my, if I owed so much money and I didn't have a handle on my life, so that I was in debt and I had to pay off my debt by selling myself into slavery, once I've been set free, some, if I realized my life, I, I didn't handle it well. Some would choose to remain bondservants or become bondservants and to remain with their masters because they had once lived without his protection and care and they didn't want to go back there. They knew the option. They said, man, my life before, I couldn't do anything. But my master is good and loving. I want to stay here. They knew that life was better with their master than on their own. So their master provided support, stability, and protection. And for those bondservants, the choice was easy because they had lived the alternative. And in this passage, Paul is arguing that this too is an easy choice. Look at verse 16. He says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. He's being clear here that you're either serving Christ or sin. Now, you might be here saying, Rick, uh, how could you say that? Just because I'm not giving myself over as a slave to Christ doesn't necessarily mean I'm in sin. You don't even know me, man. Now, I understand your objection, but hear me out. Would you be willing to ask yourself this question, if that's you? If you're not serving Christ, who or what are you serving? If you're not serving Christ, who or what are you serving? Let me give you some options. Is it some type of comfort? Is it a person? Is it a relationship? Is it the hope for a relationship? And what could it be that's keeping you from coming to the doorpost of God's house and giving yourself to Him as a bondservant? Is it fear of what he might ask of you? Man, I remember being a young person. I remember that. Let me say a young person. But I remember thinking, man, if I give myself over to God, he's going to put me somewhere where I'm going to be miserable. I'm going to be, he's going to send me to some country where they're going to eat me the first day. That's <laughs> so what's going to happen. I'm on the menu. That's what I was thinking. If I give my relationships as a teenager, I thought if I give my dating relationships over to Jesus, he's going to have me marry somebody horrible. You know, we think like that. We have that in our head that he might ask us to do something horrible. And out of that was my longing to control my own destiny. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're longing to control your own destiny. You won't give yourself over to the master. Is it the unknown that concerns you the most? You're thinking, man, if I give myself over to Jesus, he doesn't always tell me what's next. How many of you guys had little moments of heart palpitations when you heard one of our pastors say, I don't know what God has for me besides Salem? And you went, how are you going to make money? I, okay, I'll do it. But there's a person who's stepping out of faith going, I don't know what God's got. He's got something. It's amazing to think that way. Is it the dread that if you give yourself to him as a bond servant, that he's going to ruin the plan you have for your life? Flat out honest, guys, that was me. My testimony is a reverse testimony. My testimony is not, man, my life was miserable. And then I met Jesus, and he made it better. No, my my testimony was, I was enjoying my life, and then Jesus wrecked all that. But what he's built in its place is amazing, but he didn't tell me what that was going to be. He never sat me down and said, okay, Rick, here's what's going to happen. You come trust in me. You're going to get married to an amazing woman. You're going to have some amazing children, and I'm going to give you some awesome ministries. I'm in. Didn't do that. Didn't do that. He just said, follow me follow me. Please hear me when I say this. Whatever it is that's keeping you from putting yourself as a bondservant, bringing yourself to the doorpost of God's house and being a bondservant, whatever it is, it may be a noble desire that God may grant you to enjoy. But if it or the pursuit of it keeps you from coming to the doorpost of God's house and becoming a bondservant, hear me clearly, it is sin. Why is it sin? Because not only is it keeping others from seeing the beauty of your master, it's also robbing your heart from experiencing the freedom from sin and the growth in righteousness and holiness. That's why it's sin. And that brings me to what I think Paul is our second point, or Paul has for our second point that we should submit ourselves as slaves to God because he set us free from sin to grow in righteousness and holiness. In verses 17 and 19, Paul writes this, he says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves to righteousness. I'm speaking in terms, of human terms, because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctifications." Now, often when we believers speak about being free from sin, we we end it there. Like, we're set free from sin. Praise God. It's good. But we often forget that a vital part of this Christian life is the ethical system that Jesus taught us. And we see this in the Sermon on the Mount. He tells us to refuse to sinfully retaliate against perceived injustices or turn the other cheek. I won't ask for hands. How do we do this week? Loving your neighbor as yourself, loving your enemies, resisting to indulge in sinful or lustful thinking, being faithful in your relationship with your spouses or your future spouse, serving God out of what he's done for you, not on what you get from him. And we could go on and on. See, the point here is this, is that there's no true expression of the Christian faith without growth toward holiness, or we should call it Christ-likeness. That's not, it, there's no such thing as a Christian who's not growing like Christ. Or as we said last week, remember, the Spirit of God takes the Word of God to make the child of God more like the Son of God. That's how He operates. The Word of God exposes our sin, and as we regularly spend time in God's Word, we grow in our knowledge of Him and His will for our lives, we're confronted with our sinfulness, and we have to make a choice to either choose sin or choose God. And when this happens, we're to turn away from those sinful desires and pursue righteous desires. Now, if you remember, before Christ, this was impossible. We were doomed to our sinful desires and following after them. But now in Christ, we've been set free from our old in-Adam nature and have now been set free so that we can now, as indwelled by the Holy Spirit people, we can live out this life and be made holy by the Holy Spirit. The author of Hebrews, in chapter 12, verse 14, says it this way, Strive for peace with everyone and strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, let me make this as plain as possible. The resurrected life and holy living are inseparable. Those who have been declared righteous by God will surely give proof about that declaration by the pursuit of holiness in their lives. I've often described baptism, which we do here, as the wedding ring of the Christian faith. I married Jill Elizabeth Bennett on May 26, 2001. I got it right, sweetheart. So next month, we're going to celebrate 22 amazing years together. And if you're going to, don't do it, but make sure to thank her. She has lived with a difficult man for 22 years. Her ring is a lot more powerful than what I've got. This was easy. And I lose my wedding ring all the time. My youth group, the youth group will tell you. How many times have I lost my ring, guys? Every time we go to the beach. Why? Because I like to body surf. We got to the point where now I bought these little rubber wedding rings and they're, they're kind of inexpensive. So I buy like three or four at a time and I just keep them in my wife's purse. There's something metaphorical about that, that my, my, that my wife's, my wedding rings are my wife's purse, but we'll get that to another day. But when I take my wedding ring off, I'm still married, right? This doesn't put me on the market because no, look, look, no one's excited. <laughs> no one's excited, okay? This ring is a symbol that I belong to someone else. That's what holy living does. Your life living in a way that's pleasing to God is a symbol that you belong to a beautiful master, That's what it is. Or if I would say it this way, we striving for holiness is like the hole in our ear as a bondservant. It shows the world we have a beautiful master. You see, when we pursue lives marked by holiness, we magnify the God who saved us and declare that Jesus is a beautiful master. And finally, We are to submit ourselves as slaves to God because he has set us free from the shame of fear and death and has given us eternal life. Verse 20 really is a remarkable verse if you take a look at it. Verse 20, it says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Now, in other words, what that means is since righteousness exerted no control over us before Christ, we had nothing to hold us back from indulging our sinful desires. Nothing. We were blindly following our own urgings, whatever we wanted to do, without guilt or shame because we didn't know any better. But before this gets tempting for us to return to, Paul reminds in verse 21 that there's no conse- there, sorry that there was a consequence to our slavery of sin, whether we knew it or not. And it was death. He writes in verse 21, What fruit were you getting at that time from the things which you are now ashamed for the end of those things is death. Paul says that death is a logical consequence or a natural fruit of the slavery to sin. And that's why Paul urges us to become willing slaves, bond servants to God. He reasons that since the result of slavery to God is drastically preferable to being a slave to sin, why would you choose to return to slavery? Paul explains that, but now you've been set free from sin and become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Where sin pays the honor or pays an earned wage of death, another beautiful master comes in and pays an undeserved Christ-likeness in this life, and eternal life forevermore. That's what he's saying right there. Or as the ESV study Bible puts it, a great little succinct quote, Christians now have a new status and a new destiny. You were once slaves to sin, heading to death. And now the beautiful master has come in and set you free to righteousness and eternal life. We've been declared righteous before God by faith in Christ. We've been set free from the bondage of sin and the wages of death. We've been gifted the Holy Spirit, whose mission it is to make us more like Jesus. Can I ask you a question? What on earth is keeping us from bringing ourselves to the doorpost of his house and proclaiming boldly with our lives that he is a most beautiful master and that he can take what's left of our lives and use it for his glory and for the mission of reaching the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Two weeks ago, I wasn't here. I was in a church, Western Avenue Baptist Church in Statesville, North Carolina. My niece was getting baptized. And they had about seven people getting baptized. They went from ages, the first one was, I believe, Stella, who is age nine. And if I got that wrong, don't tell Stella and let's edit the tape. The last one was a 79-year-old woman. And listen, I wasn't a member of Western Avenue, so I could do what I want there. But I about came unglued when that lady gave her testimony. She said, I grew up Roman Catholic, and I knew that the the Christian life was about do this, do that, be a good person. And I never heard the gospel until I came here. The gospel that declares us righteous by faith, not on an act, not on an ability, not on anything we can do, but only on Christ. And then she gave some shout outs to some people in the balcony who were there, her family. And she says, I'm publicly declaring today that I'm a believer in Christ and I'm gonna serve him with my life. And then she remembered to take out her hearing aids before they baptized her. (laughs) I was like, it's gonna be awesome. And this lady was baptized, 79. This is a woman who said, whatever life I have left, I have a beautiful master. And that moment she was baptized, she publicly showed the world, the hole in her ears a bondservant. And she publicly declared to this guy, man, what are we waiting for? When we go out of here and we live lives that please him, knowing that we're not perfect, we've talked about that at nauseum. we know we can't be perfect. But as we live holy lives and, and tell him, we'll do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want it. We're proclaiming to the world He's a beautiful master. We've had examples, ladies and gentlemen, where we grieve today. We've seen examples, two examples in our pastoral team of men who've said, this is comfortable. I've got a nice office. I've got a nice ministry. But God is burning my heart to do something else. Not that Salem's at a bad place, but that God is doing something in their hearts. And like good bond servants, they're remembering the hole in their ear and they're going out the door and they're serving God faithfully. May we be men and women who are willing to come to the doorpost of God's house and say whatever you want, however you want, whenever you want. And when we leave, when we walk out of these doors, may we proclaim to the world that we have a most beautiful master. Will you pray with me today? Our Father and our great God, our master, We come before you, and Father, I'll say I've been convicted by your word. Father, forgive me where I have forgotten what it's like to be a bondservant. Father, restore to me the joy of being a bondservant of you when at age 21 I gave it all over to you. And I couldn't get enough of your word. I couldn't get enough of spending time with you and other people. And whatever you said, I would, I would do. And wherever I felt like you were leading, I would go. Father, forgive me for letting comforts and fear and worry and a desire to control take me away. Father, I want to come back before you, and I pray for my friends in the same way in this room. That we would come before you today and renew that commitment we made to you. Come to the doorposts of your house, let you mark our ear, so that we can now go proclaim to the world we serve a most beautiful master. It's not about our glory of being bond servants; it's about the glory of the master whom we serve. May we serve you through faithfulness to whatever you want. As your word exposes sin in our lives, may we be willing to let it go, repent, and turn to follow you. When your word shows us or when your spirit leads us or guides us to to make changes in our lives, whether it be um, our behavior, our, our choices, or even our vocation or our mission, God, make us willing to do it. Father, because the true mission has not changed. You've called your church to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and to teach them to observe all the things that you commanded your disciples. Father, forgive us where we haven't done that, and may we be afresh and anew, do that today. And may we remember that you're with us always for every day until the end of the days. Father, I pray that you would bless this time of our worship. May we celebrate the one who has set us free. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. Love you guys.